yeah. Are we back? We sure are. Is it that time again? It sure is. If anyone is wondering, this is Anthony Rotunno, co-host of Brooklyn Paper Radio, back in the studio with my co-host Johnny Cunin for another great episode. Johnny, how are you? I'm doing. How you doing? I'm doing, you know, doing with Johnny Cunin. It's a Another great day to be in Brooklyn and another great day to be listening to our show. Why? Why? Because we have a ton of interesting guests coming on. Um, first and foremost, want to shout out to Brooklyn-born and bred filmmaker Spike Lee for winning his first Academy Award last night after five nominations. Yes, Spike, Spike representing the Borough of Kings. He took home an Academy Award for Black Klansman. Um, Did you see that movie? I didn't see the film, but now I really want... There are so many films I want to watch after having watched the ceremony. Um, because I'd say there was a great number... You know, there were a great number I hadn't seen, and seeing them win awards, including Spike's, you know, it got me going. I'd only seen a few. I saw The Favorite, and I saw Vice. So okay. there are a lot left to be watched. For sure. Um but Spike, you know, great, great moment on stage. And another, you know, Brooklyn Knight stole the show at the Oscars. Barbara Streisand hey. performed one of the best um, song nominees. Give it up for Babs. Yeah. Sorry, it wasn't Babs. It was Bette Midler. Well, but Babs presented applause. an award. Yeah. I apologize. The reason I brought Spike up, though, yeah. is because we have another award winning guest on our show today. That being Grammy Award winning Lucy Kalantari of Lucy Kalantari and the Jazz Cats, who took their home home their first Grammy for Best Children's Album this year, earlier this month at the awards. Um, Four-time nominees, first-time winners. They're going to be join, joining us with Bill Roundy a little later to share where to go, what to do, and what to listen to sure. this week. Um, but before that, Johnny... We got to get to some news. We do. But even before that, much before that, more importantly, we have to thank our sponsor. Yes. Brookdale University Hospital Medical Center. Tony, they are the leader in healthcare in East Brooklyn and part of the One Brooklyn Health System that includes Interfaith and Kingsbrook Jewish Medical Center. Tony, it is still Heart Health Month. It's still February. That's right. A couple more days. Go get your heart checked out. Know your risks. Absolutely. Very important. And let, uh, need we remind you, um, women, heart disease, the number one killer of women in the United States. And Brookdale will do all that they can to make sure yours is beating properly. So check them out, brookdalehospital.org, or give them a call, 718-240-5600, Brookdale University Hospital, the leader of healthcare in East Brooklyn. Tony, Keep talking to me. What are we doing today? Well, that was beautiful. Thank you again to Brookdale Hospital for sponsoring the show and for Johnny for reading that so eloquently. Thank um, you, sir. Today, you know, before we get to the fun stuff, where to go, what to do, we've rounded up a couple of guests um, who we wanted to kind of probe their their brains a little bit more. You know, they're what the Brooklyn paper calls its experts. Okay. Um, you know, as everybody's knows, as every listener and reader knows, the Brooklyn paper is doggedly covering, um, you know, everything that's going on over in Brooklyn Heights right now with regard to the Brooklyn Queens Expressway repair, but also, you know, how that will affect the promenade, how that will affect the quality of the air, how that will affect, um, you know, the quality of life there. But not only the expressway, we've also been following the, you know, 
never-ending tale of the beleaguered Squib Bridge, which, you know, as readers and listeners know, is this sort of chronically plagued bridge from the start. It opened back in 2013 with about $4 million in taxpayer funds. Um, You know, people love to call it Brooklyn's own Gallup and Gertie. Johnny, I know you had an experience on the Squib Bridge. I was surprised at how wobbly it was. Yeah, a lot of bouncing. Yeah, I was like, you know, this is cool, but I I feel like I'm at a amusement park or something should pay pay admission to get on that exactly well, yeah and then you know next thing you know you can't do it anymore it could so. be a, a good way to fund um you know its upcoming replacement but let me before we get there really quickly it opened in 2013 closed the next year for its first 32 i believe 32 month repair about three million dollars that's seven million right there on the bridge reopened in 2017 then closed again last July abruptly for weeks. Weren't sure what happened. This newspaper stayed on the beat, found out two months, three months later in September, the park claimed that a single, you know, that the wood that they used to build this bridge, which is black locust wood, allegedly some of the most, you know, indestructible wood there is, environmentally sustainable, withstands any element. Last September, the park park leaders claimed it was the wood that made it bad it's the know, wood that made it which bad. is my attempt at riffing on a, you know a beloved news phrase it's the wood that makes it good the wood being what they used to you know actually print the headlines right. of on the paper um it's the wood that makes it bad over in the park apparently the black locust that they used for the bridge was flawed throughout they thought it was one piece it turned out to be several pieces and um Last December, the park announced they were just going to replace the thing after it had been closed its second time for five months. They just announced they were going to knock it down and build a new one. A couple weeks later, unsolicitedly, we got a uh, contacted by a you know a forty a self described forty year veteran in the wood business, um, a fellow who runs a wood supply company down in North Carolina, who said it isn't you know you can't. Blame the wood. It's not the wood's fault. This guy, you know, was very, he had a lot to say about the wood. He had a few kind of claims about why it wouldn't just be the wood. And, you know, we we had a great story about that. Julianne Cuba in one of her final pieces. Um, she's no longer with the paper, but we love her dearly and wish her luck. Um, she spoke to the guy and got, you know, his sort of arguments as to why it can't be the wood. So that fellow, Zach Reich, is going to be on. But before we have Zach, we're going to welcome another friend of Brooklyn Paper, Simeon Bankoff, who runs the private preservation preservationist group, the Historic Districts Council, which has basically, you know, come out and told the city elsewhere in Brooklyn Heights, you can't tear up the Brooklyn Queens Expressway and put a highway on the promenade because that's a landmark. Mm. It's a scenic landmark, which means any of its sight lines cannot any new development can't interfere, interfere with the sight lines. Obviously, a highway on the walkway, that would interfere with its sight lines. Seems like a disaster in so many ways, but also with the sight line. At least of which it would not be preserved in the way that it's supposed to be. Also, Brooklyn Heights, you know, much of that neighborhood is a historic district. So, you know, unlike the scenic landmark, those homes in the district, those are treated as just as individual or interior landmarks. You know, any changes geographic or geographic visible changes you know to the built structures in that district need to be approved by the city now of course the city is doing 
the, the is leading the construction on the VQE. So, you know, the city, it could be argued, can change its own rules. Sure. But Simeon and locals are kind of trying to hold the city accountable there and, you know, pushing them to acknowledge these decrees, these landmarking status they, statuses they made decades ago, you know, before they jump off with this plan. And we wanted to have Simeon on the show to kind of talk to us more about where that effort lies, if he thinks that's a credible argument, if or if he thinks the city is just going to change its, you know, work around its own measures to get its job done. Right. Um, but obviously, you know, opposition to the city's plans for the BQE repair hasn't really grown any quieter since they were announced last September. Um, if anything, you know, the 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 turmoil still bubbling and brewing um there's now a third plan out there you know i know you've got I your have fourth plan the plan which we're gonna we're tell trying another to get day a, yeah you know the the architect behind the third plan on the show mark right. wooters so he can look into your fourth plan and sign off on and it then, really you know save the day but first i play okay Enough. let's try to get simeon on the phone and and talk about what we might lose if any of these plans come to fruition it's always a bit of a gamble getting on this phone but this is simeon simeon hi this is anthony rotano editor-in-chief of brooklyn paper and co-host of brooklyn paper radio hey anthony how are you doing i'm well thanks how are you i'm with my co-host johnny cunin simeon how are you good nice to meet you and thanks for taking the time yeah of thank course. you and our producer natalie um diligently making sure everything's happening behind the scenes fantastic you know we johnny and i just kind of set up the reason for our chat, which is to kind of check in with you um, and sort of, you know, provide a little more context behind the argument that both your organization, the Historic Districts Council, um, and leaders of other local, you know, community boards and 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 mm -hmm. groups are saying with regard to, you know, the city's own landmark laws and how they pertain to its proposals to fix the the Brooklyn Queens Expressway. So. We've talked about it in our own words, but we'd love to have you sort of frame that argument for us and, and remind our readers a little bit about what your group, the Historic District, Districts Council, does, you know, here in, in not just Brooklyn, but in New York City. Sure. Happy to do so. Uh, the Historic Districts Council is the citywide advocate for New York's historic neighborhoods. We came into existence in 1970 as a coalition of neighborhood groups who either represented historic districts or wanted want to be historic districts back in the early days of the Landmarks Law. And um, since then, we have really kind of grown to be the foremost citywide advocate that really comes from communities for historic preservation in general. We are the only citywide group that that actually reviews every single public proposal that affects a recognized historic building, a landmark, um, and comments on them when necessary at the Landmarks Commission. That's about 500 proposals a year that we wow. review and we testify on probably about half of them. We work with neighborhoods like Brooklyn Heights, which is New York City's first historic district, and neighborhood groups, uh, to neighborhood groups like the Brooklyn Heights Association, which is a very old civic organization, to groups like Preserving East New York, which uh, is trying to forward preservation goals in East New York, which is not a historic district. It only has actually one landmark building, and Preserving East New York was only formed three years ago. So we run the gamut. Sure. We uh, work in all five boroughs, 
And our primary constituency is about 500 or so community-based, almost entirely volunteer groups. Wow. Well, that's a huge footprint for, um, you know, a, a community-based organization and, and 500, you know, applications a year for you guys to review. You know, that's, Keep it's almost two a day. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's not, and that's counting weekends. Um, well, Simeon, obviously, you know, you're all over the place, but you, you brought it up yourself, Brooklyn Heights, the city's first historic district, America's first suburb, um, you know, right now your efforts, you know, while you're focusing them citywide, you know, they, they, they seem to have well, this is a- concentrated here over this, you know, this promenade or this expressway repair plan. And, you know, a lot of people have come out for reasons why not to do it. Um, I think legally your argument, you know, is the first that is more than just, you know, I don't want this because it will make my life miserable. Like there's actual <laughs> well, legal I, I grounds. I don't think it's going to make anyone's, anyone's life better in the short term. Fair in enough. In the long term, perhaps. In, in the, the short term, term, I think it's it's hard to find. Yeah. But, but legally, you know, I, there are laws here that it sounds like, you know, reasonably it could be proven will be broken if they proceed a certain way. Uh, we That is our deep concern at this point. I think it's very important when you're talking about legal issues to say that at the regardless of what has been reported in some papers, um, there's no legal challenge because there's no plan that has been decided upon yet. Right. The time is not ripe for right. a legal challenge. However, the Brooklyn Heights promenade is uh let's let's go through the designations which it has, which is going uh on a local level, it is part of the Brooklyn Heights Historic District. Right. It was included in 1965 um, as the as uh, I'm sorry, 1966 as part of the Brooklyn Heights Historic District uh, deliberately as as something that should be protected and considered as a significant feature of the area. It is on the National Register of Historic Places, which is the federally established registry of historic resources, uh, be they roads, buildings, whatever. And the the primary purpose of the federal designation as opposed to the local designation is that the federal designation is to really mitigate and guard against negative government action against properties. Um, Because the the federal, sorry to interrupt, but the federal designation doesn't come with any stipulations as far as as you know approval for development on or around the designation site correct uh, it doesn't actually affect privately funded design uh privately funded development oh interesting but it very much affects pu- publicly funded development that's the whole purpose of it the purpose of the na- one of the main functions of the national register of historic places um on a protective level is to make sure that you don't that government in the course of doing a road widening proposal doesn't knock down a house that George Washington slept in well put additionally the uh, the New York City the New York City landmarks law was was established in 1965 the National Historic Preservation Act was established in 1966 we're first so there are different regulations um but it's, it's a, and that is what established the national register additionally the Brooklyn Heights promenade 
is part of the Brooklyn Heights National Historic Landmark, which is the highest level of distinction and honor and protection that the federal government bestows bestows on a historic property. So up and down, these this particular site has been designated as should government choose to do something, there are a number of steps it must take, there are a number of actions and consider, considerations and alternatives that government must take legally under federally binding law that's also reinforced on the state level to to do, um, to make sure that you don't harm, you don't use public monies to harm a publicly acknowledged resource. Uh, I have one Small question, then sure. sort of one larger follow-up question. Um, question number one, is it also a scenic landmark? No. It's not a scenic landmark. No. Um, it is actually, however, it is the only protected scenic view corridor under the New York City Zoning Resolution. Now, this has been, you know, this has been contested before when they were trying, you know, with the development of buildings down in Brooklyn Bridge Park. Yes. I know the Pier House and, and the one hotel. And they got around that. They got around that because of standing issues and procedural issues. Now, without explaining what those are, is that a is that a pick that could be used again in this scenario, or no. or you think that's different? No, because <laughs> actually, I mean that this is they're not even we're not even really talking about the scenic view corridor. We're talking about the the actual improvement, the Brooklyn Heights promenade itself. The actual physical existence of the, of the promenade. Mm-hmm. I see. And additionally, and this is something else, there are additional. Uh, back to my original road widening concept, there are even more restrictive uh, regulations that go into road widening. That they, when all the urban renewal was happening, they they put into the National Transportation Act that you really, really, really shouldn't affect historic resources such as old buildings, uh, Native American burial sites, churches, stuff like that, because of road road widenings and highway development, which is what this is. This is a highway project. Right. So I guess my... So your big question. My bigger follow-up question is based on what we know, you know, the plans that have been proposed by the city, you know, which are to turn the promenade into into the speedway or to do the lane by lane repair mm-hmm. would would option 1 only be, would option 1 be the only option that sort of violates these protection designations would would the lane by lane repair still imperil you know the landmarked and otherwise federally recognized um depend i mean i know Part of this is what determines the process to review these things. Right. So in either case, you know, there are certain levels of review that need to happen, including, you know, discussion of alternatives, discussion of impact, and whatnot. Um, Not being a structural engineer, my best guess would be that uh, the impact of the lane-by-lane repair would be far less than the turning into a speedway. I mean, it obviously is. Of course, yeah. I mean, it, would, it wouldn't it would work. I, structurally, I don't think that it, it calls for 
changing, you know, the nature of what of the, the promenade is. So in that sense, that could be a low, what is referred to as a, a, a minimal impact scenario, which is what you're looking for when you're looking in, into environmental mitigation. Now, did you get the sense, I mean, you're, you're on the ground, you're working in the communities that, or the community, I should say, that this is directly going to affect. Did you get the sense that the city, you know, it obviously took time to put these plans together. I, one would hope it didn't, you know, they didn't just come to the decision after a 12-hour brainstorm. Was there legwork ahead of time, you know, that indicated they were taking these designations into effect when they put this plan together? Or do you think that this is something that, you know, based on the trajectory of the past several months, that, that they are now just like, okay, now we'll address this because it's come up sort of thing? It's. I mean, uh, they, the city was fully aware, and the state is fully aware of all these all these designations. They have expert people who work on this all day long. Um, and I can't really see into their hearts and minds. It has been a reasonably opaque process. Okay. And I obviously, you know, as with any kind of major capital camp capital proposal, a lot of discussion happened behind, you know, within the agencies before they even brought it to the public. Right, right, right. I do think that just from my reading of what's going on, they were hoping, the city has been hoping to uh, beat what they regard to be the clock of necessity. Right. With as well as, yeah. the, frankly, the, um, the political clock that um, they probably wish to do this from a pragmatic level, well, Mayor de Blasio, they, they probably wish to get all the permissions while Mayor de Blasio is still in office. Sure, sure. It would be that much more of an undertaking to kind of have two administrations. Exactly. And additionally, when you have to, when you consider that all of the city council is going to be changing over, the Brooklyn Borough President is going to be changing over, um, Governor Cuomo has just been reelected, but again, you know, I mean, the... They're kind of they're on they're trying to beat a political clock, I think, on this one. Well, Simeon, I, I there's so there's so many other things I want to ask you, but unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap it up only to accommodate some of our other guests today. But one of the things I I want to know, you know, the the your plan kind of came out into the news a couple of weeks ago. You know, it, it gained a lot of traction. I read about it in in several places other than in our newspaper. Um, since it's been sort of aired in the public, what has changed in regard to, you know, your perceptions of the project, you know, how the city is handling it, you know, how the conversations about it are happening now that this plan is out there or that either your argument is out there? Rather. I, I think, you know, we're starting to see a little bit of daylight on this, but not nearly enough. And I think, and when that, you say daylight, what, like you're starting to see the city acknowledge these yes. hurdles? Acknowledge that this is this is a real concern. That this isn't simply, oh my goodness, people in Brooklyn Heights don't want to deal with all of this construction, and you know, Mister So and So and Mrs. Such and Such are going to be in losing their backyards. It's a that little bit more. I feel that there is a, a sort of broader understanding of what's at stake here. Slowly, gaining. Who, ultimately, would be the enforcer of these, would it be city versus city if it were to come down to some sort of litigation or some sort of invocation of these protections? Would it, it be city it, it versus feds? It's a question of who is the lead agency and um, 
is it a state lead agency is it, or is the state giving the city the nose on being the lead, the lead agency um if it came into a legal situation eventually it would be some you know the plaintiffs would be some combination of private individuals and hopefully our elected officials in the legislature um against either it's against some sort of uh public agency all right last question going to put you on the hot seat of the, you know you it's clear you deal with preservation on all levels local state federal mm-hmm. of the three administrations in place now who's who has the most sympathetic ear to an argument like this it's very hard to say i would not say it'd be the federals okay <laughs> Um, but where would your organization turn, you know, to get the most traction if they pick option one, what we would hope to do and, you know, working in, we're working very strongly in coalition with the Brooklyn Heights Association, with a better way, with our colleagues at the Landmarks Conservancy, all of whom have been very, very, and, and, you know, the Dumbo Neighborhood Alliance, the Vinegar Hill, uh, society, all of whom are being very strong on this because it affects several, several historic neighborhoods, as well as having terrible precedent for how we treat our historic properties. Um, I think that what we're hoping to do is gain allies in our elected officials who can then bring it to their partners in government and convince eventually the agencies that they need to rethink their plan. Could this be the next Penn Station? I dislike going back to that well, but this does have profound – this has the opportunity for having profound implications for how landmarks are treated in New York. How are you supposed to tell somebody that they need to reconstruct their stoop when the city is destroying a major national landmark with public money? Well, we're going to let that question linger in the air. Simeon Bankoff, thank you so much for joining us today and for you know giving us a little more context and, and some updates on you know what you're seeing over in Brooklyn Heights with regard to this BQE project, which is only going to get hairier as the days go ahead. Thanks so much for, for calling in. Uh, uh, yeah, thank you. you. Likewise, and, and I'm sure we'll chat again soon. Okay. Thanks, Simeon. Listeners, that was Simeon Bankoff, the executive director of the Historic Districts Council, which is a private preservation group that works citywide, you know, to advocate on landmarking efforts, to review landmarking efforts, as he said. You know, seriously, it could be the next Pence. You know, let's not forget all of the reason, you know, all the city agencies that Simeon spoke about with regard to landmarking came into existence after developers tore down and rebuilt Penn Station and and that was 56 that was in the 60s so you know we're getting to a point in time where I think you know the physical effects of that people forget you know people forget the emotion of that time people forget the the argument you know and and it sounds like the promenade you know his words not mine how are you going to tell someone to fix their stoop if you're going to tear down a federally recognized walkway. Well, I'm just shocked that it's even gotten this far because the whole idea to me sounds insane. I, on so many levels, it's such a terrible idea. The fact that we're even here. Still going? Yeah. yeah, I think it's the type of thing where somebody says, oh, why don't we turn the promenade into a highway? And people are like, 
Yeah, that's it's a, it's an interesting idea. It's not the one we're going to choose. So what other ideas do you have? And you know, at some point we'll get into mine. Not today. I well, you know, I think you're. I, I, not you to vetted tease my, your idea you too much, but there are a lot of people support your idea. You know, I, this is a big idea, John. This is has. a big idea, but it's not meant for the show because. As I always do, I let the interview go a little long, and we've got Zach Reich that we've got to dial in. But but I just want to say his interview and Simeon's interview are both brought to you by Brookdale University Hospital Medical yes. Center, the leader in healthcare in East Brooklyn and a part of one Brooklyn health system that includes Interfaith and Kingsbrook Jewish Medical Center. Tony, I told you this before, it is still Heart Month. Three more days? We're still in February. It's the 25th. Yeah. So get your heart checked. Not just women, men, you know, everybody. You only have, you should only, you only have one heart. That's right. And loving your heart means knowing your risks. So get in touch with their division of cardiology, they got physicians and a team of highly skilled nurses and technicians, full range of diagnostic testing. They will figure out what's up with your heart, and they'll tell it to you in a language that you will understand. Get 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 online and uh, sign up for an appointment at brookdalehospital.org or give them a call, 718-240-5600, Brookdale University Hospital, the leader in healthcare in East Brooklyn. Tony, you were saying we're going to call somebody else? We've got another call to make. Yeah, that to Zach Reich of Roby Decking. Zach is our Black Locust Wood apologist, and we're going to have him on just for a few minutes. You know, a lot of um, a lot of people feel a lot of ways about the Squib Bridge. Zach's going to tell us why we shouldn't blame its wood. Good afternoon. This is Zach Reich. Zach, hi. This is Anthony Rotano, co-host of Brooklyn Paper Radio and editor-in-chief of Brooklyn Paper. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. We're glad to have you on the show. Thanks for your time. I'm here with my co-host, Johnny Kunin. Hey, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing well. And um, our wonderful producer, Natalie, who is so busy she can never talk, but she's doing so much. Um, Zach, First of all, thank you for taking the time, and also, you know, thank you for reaching out to us back when you did um, with your concerns about sort of the public account for what happened with the Squib Bridge. You know, which, as our story pointed out, and I'd kind of love to start there, but maybe hear it in your own terms. You know, you'd followed the story of the bridge. We were giving listeners a bit of a recap earlier in the show. You know, it opened in 2013, four million dollar project. Taxpayer funded, closed the next August for 32 months, $3 million repair, reopened in spring of 2017, closed again in July of 2018, closed indefinitely in September of 2018, and then death knell sounded, death bell rung. It was announced it would be replaced last December. You followed that from afar. Tell us in your own words, where when you started to wonder maybe there was more to the story than what was being told? Yeah, so um, I'd never... Um, we started a, a Black Locust, primarily a Black Locust uh, decking and lumber business about four or five years ago, and we were aware of the of the project it got a lot of national press it won a lot of national awards um it was being hailed as um, a really great use of, of wood in a structural setting where typically we had used more unsustainable products um like concrete or metal and whatnot and so it got a lot of press so had paid attention to it there a little bit had paid attention to it 
that it was constructed, had paid attention to it, that was um, that it was shut down because it was it was squeaking too much or moving too much. Never really got into the nitty gritty details of it until um, probably last fall when a when a news story popped up and where it said that the folks were considering um, basically replacing the bridge and then had made the decision to replace the bridge. And so that's when probably November, December last year, I really started to look into it and, and did some deep diving into the construction of it, uh, pulled up some pictures of the wood that was used by the contractors, pulled up uh, some sketches and the actual uh, pictures of the wood connectors that were, were used. And that was that's the, really the first time I really looked at it in, in detail, uh, any pictures or any of the um, any, any of the wood. And it just blew me away that the um, the engineers that had designed and, and, and the contractors that had built the bridge uh, had really seemed like they were not that experienced in construction of wood uh, because the things that they did with the with the connectors uh, really abandon some of the very basic basic principles of of construction with wood and it was really shocking that the folks at the Brooklyn Bridge uh, Park and whatnot were really blaming the wood where they had all these high high-end engineers and architects involved and it, it was like they were glancing over it because nobody wanted to take the fault on it and and really start to blame an inanimate object that is a wonderful, wonderful domestic wood that you have, folks have a ton of up there in, in upstate New York and can really help some of the, the more struggling areas in upstate New York. And I wanted to make sure that word got out there that the issue was not in the wood. The issue was in the engineering and the connectors of the wood and, and really, to us, what appears to be a very significant lack of understanding of, of wood and, and a lack of, of using means and, and, and materials of some very basic fundamental uh, building properties of the wood. And, and that's really our only goal was to, to make sure that folks knew that, in our opinion, the, the wood's not to blame. And we don't want, the, we don't want black locusts, which is a wonderful species, to be hurt. Um, it's, it's a very commercially important. Yeah. How much of your business, just so we're clear, you know, how much of your business is black locust based? How much yeah, money? Probably 80 to 90% okay. of our revenue is, is black. Where locust. does that come from? Black locust wood. Uh, we get it from everywhere we can find it. Uh, we, we do get uh, actually quite a bit from, from upstate New York around the, uh, North of the Finger Lakes uh, area, um, around Rochester, um, it's a it's a wonderful species. Now you said you really got into. I respect the... all wood. <laughs> we respect all wood here at Brooklyn Paper, and it looks a little bit like the uh, shag bark hickory, but it's it's not for all the tree tree wow. people out there. Can you pull a picture yeah, of that it, up it, or it something? It sure does. It sure does. Um, thank you for backing me up on that. Very astute, yeah. Johnny. So, and and listeners, um, if you haven't read. Our story, which Zach was quoted in, um, he has, you know, his firm, Roby Decking, has, you know, it had no play in the Squid Bridge project, but it did use Black Locust to construct 
the roof on the Brooklyn Children's Museum, um, which is still intact. It's a cool um, job. And, you know, one interesting thing that uh, Natalie is going to share with us, Zach, and then perhaps, you know, you you can kind of weigh in. We had a one of the commenters on the story um, leave a really thoughtful, uh, you know, detailed account. He claimed now, obviously, we don't have a sophisticated vetting system for our comment section, but he claimed to be a former New York City parks worker. And he oh. weighed in a little bit about the you know, selection process and, and, you know, his opinion of the job. Natalie, can you kind of yeah. read some of the highlights of that comment? Yeah. So, um, hi, Zach. Thank you for calling in. Um, hey, so Natalie. I'm going to read some highlights from this comment. Um, well, first off, he, um, he tells that he is a New York City, he worked for the New York City Parks for 20 years. And um, he reaffirms that you're correct in stating the wood is not completely to blame. But he goes on further to kind of discuss, as you did, um, the history of black locusts being used in the United States. But specifically, he said that the wood has been known to last 90 years in ground contact without treatment and is still can still be rock solid. Um, and then further, one of the things that um, I highlighted is really interesting, is he said, I'm curious to know what they consider a higher than expected moisture level. And I was wondering if you could share some thoughts on that. Yeah, well, well, first off, I mean, I'm from the south, and one of the things that we have in the south in the Appalachian Mountains is a black locust fence post lasts two years longer in the ground than a rock does. <laughs> so, so that kind of gives you, and, and ironically, uh, we did replace some of the uh, posts at Jamestown Plantation uh, last year, and um, we think that those posts may have actually been the original posts that those houses were constructed on. Um, we haven't done any age dating of them or anything, but they lasted well over 100 years uh, in that application. So, yeah, I, I mean, that kind of concerned me as well. Uh, the, the crazy thing content, is also um, the, the comment from that. When, when I read things about it from the, from the park and whatnot, where they questioned the, the moisture content of the wood, and, and that poster posted the same thing. But the I park. One of the prop, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, in the same breath, the park questioned it. You know, then they also, you know, said, we've been told it would. You could stick it in Nevada water for a hundred years and nothing would happen. So they seemed to be dubious of that claim as well, which is just again strange to me. Well, what, one of the key things that folks have to understand is if if you submerge completely submerge pretty much any wood in water, it basically mummifies it and it prevents it from getting oxygen into and out of the wood and and really petrifies the wood. Um, I mean, there was a recently uh, about five eight years ago, something like that, when one of the hurricanes came through the, and I don't want to get too far off track here, came through the, uh, off the coast of Alabama, where it unsettled a, a cypress forest that they originally thought was about 10,000 years old, dating back to the last ice age. They actually did some, some testing of it, and, and the wood actually, because it was petrified underneath the ocean, was actually 40,000 years old um, and, and dates back to the second to last ice age. 40,000 years ago. So when, when you completely submerge wood into water, you, you don't allow oxygen into and out of that wood. You also don't allow sunlight to get into and out of that wood. One of the problems with the design with the connectors that they had, and one of, it, it, it's just mind-boggling that the, that the folks would utilize the, these connectors that basically encapsulate the ends of the wood um, around these, these metal caps that they put in. So what happened 
what happens is wood, when it's not when it's not submerged in water and when it's just sitting outside or anything like that, it loses most of its moisture out of the ends of the wood. Uh, that's where uh, wood loses uh, an extreme amount, and different woods are different, lose different moisture content in different ways, but the ends of the wood are, are where wood loses and gains the most of its moisture. And what the folks did with those caps on the end of the wood, or they trapped that moisture in there. So as the wood is trying to, to lose moisture over time uh, in those metal caps, that, that moisture has nowhere to go. And that that moisture is 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 constantly getting dry when it's when it's when you're going through your, your dry seasons up in New York, mm-hmm. uh, maybe like in July and August and September, that wood's getting very dry. And then when it starts to rain and moisture is coming into that wood, then that moisture is getting trapped in the ends of those caps. And that combination is really just a, a basic fundamental principle of, of wood construction that was really ignored. And that caused the wood to expand and contract against those caps, that the moisture had nowhere to go out of it. And and it's really the, the basic problem with the, the entire bridge design is, is the, those caps and how they how they connected the wood using the, those metal caps around the ends of them. Yeah. So, Zach, you're talking about the um, way that the bridge was constructed. And I want to read to you um, one of the last um, parts of that. It was a really long comment. So he said, I believe there were too many unknowns and too many design variables to go forward the way that engineers and designers did. Also with a quote unquote new material that had never been used that way. So towards the end of this long comment, um, the citizen says that it's not too many people are familiar with how to construct wood properly. I mean, you just spoke to that of, you know, this might be a design flaw. Is there, I mean, what are your thoughts on that as far as um, people using, I guess, this kind of wood in construction for a pedestrian bridge? Well, I'm not an engineer and I'm not a mechanical engineer um, that, that that can speak to the actual engineering properties of of how how bridges are designed, right. I, I can really only speak to the wood. Right, but, would this wood normally um, make a good bridge right, bridge substance? You, you can. We can go in the Midwest, and you can pull up pictures of, of black locust pedestrian bridges, and actually, uh, uh, bridges can, can constructed completely out of black locust, and in Illinois and Ohio, and, and some of the Midwest states uh, that are actually transportation bridges that have been completely constructed out of black locust. Um, they allowed in the construction of that. They simply allowed for the wood to expand and contract, and for it to gain and lose moisture in a proper way, and not encapsulate that moisture to where it's going to cause problems on the wood. Um, I really think that the it would be interesting to to get the engineers, and, and there are some highly these are some of the biggest engineering firms in the United States, some of the most well respected. It'd be interesting to know from those folks what other projects they have done with wood specifically and and wood in uh, in this type of environment where it's used in a bridge like this. Yeah, I wonder if they respect wood at all, quite frankly. Well, we know that the next bridge allegedly will have be just, you know, they said aluminum and steel. So I don't know, I don't want to say that is indicative of their opinion on wood or their ability to construct with wood, but it seems like they're really putting the nail into you know the coffin as it were with you know this 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 it was the wood's fault so we're we're doing a complete 180 from the wood well you know this this interview really 
uh, illuminated something for me, which is that I thought that this was a dangerous bridge because of how wobbly it was when I walked on it in uh, 2013. I was, I mentioned before, I thought, wow, this thing really uh, goes back and forth a lot of give here. But it turns out it's because of the way they put the the wood into these uh, metal frames. And, it, and I'm not an engineer either, but uh, you know, you've you've made a pretty clear impression of what could have gone wrong here. So I appreciate you uh, making that clear for all of us. Yeah, the, yeah, really, yeah, and, and appreciate the time and effort that you folks have put in here to it, and and, and hopefully, um, hopefully it'll enlighten folks to, to know that this is a wonderful wood. It's a it's a uh, it's a domestic species that can really help. Out is it a fast growing tree? Yeah, it's it's probably the most fast growing uh, domestic species that they have. The USDA has come up with a cultivar up there that they think is a fifteen to thirty year grower. Uh, which is really unheard of for a for a hardwood tree. That's more of a softwood tree, like a pine or a Douglas fir tree. Right. But for a hardwood tree, I mean, that's really un- unimaginable that we could get to that point, and that could really help out the um, the upstate uh, uh, New York area. Well, Zach, thank you again for joining us. Right before we let you go, um, you know, we just so our listeners are aware, we did you know reach out to the park. Um, following our conversation with yourself and and expressed the concerns and observations that you shared with us with with them, you know, in an effort to kind of get to the bottom of this. And we asked them for their engineering report that they used to base the decision to shutter the bridge and replace it on, um, you know, which they claimed illustrated the wood being at fault. And they wouldn't give it to us. They told us we had to go through the freedom of information law to get that report, which, mm-hmm. you know, to me, I always wonder why if you can quickly prove something isn't true or is true, why would you make people jump through hoops to get that information? I don't know. Um, well, well, look, they, they, they know and the engineers know the issue. And if, if the engineers, if they don't, if they can't find engineers that the, the bridge, the way it's built, has to basically completely be reconstructed. Because no matter if you build it out of wood again, or if you build it out of metal or concrete or whatever, uh, it has to be the, the current design does not work. So it, you have to basically start over from scratch. And if they're not comfortable using wood again, I mean that's obviously their choice. And if the folks that they have are not comfortable um, building with wood, which they should probably raise their hands with and said day one, hey, this is our, yeah, I, I don't know, but I mean this appears to me to be their first wood bridge, the way that they built it. And it probably would have been good for those folks to raise my, raise their hands to begin with and say, hey, uh, you know, this is our first wood bridge. Um, you know, we're not comfortable doing it. So maybe they should have thought about, hey, should we have used, used another material? And as I understand it, you've got a standing offer to collect that wood if they don't want it anymore, correct? But haven't heard back? Absolutely. I mean, we reached out to the park, uh, I think back in November, December, and, and said, hey, we've been reading these stories about it. We'd like to talk to your to your new director about it. We don't think it's the wood's fault. We don't think it's fair that you're, you're blaming the wood, and we'd actually like to buy the wood because um, we think it's still a... Viable material. Still quality wood and, and can be used again. We, you know, we just don't want to see them go throw it away or go sell it for firewood or something like that, we can we can obviously take it and take it off their hands. That could help them out. I mean, it's not going to, it's not $5 million worth of wood or whatever they, they paid for it, but I mean, we could, you know, help them out a little bit economically to, to, to lessen the blow a little bit. Well, Zach, 
thank you again. If you do hear from them, um, if they do take you up on your offer, if they do, you know, get back to you with any sort of information, I know our readers, our listeners would love to, you know, know any more about what you find out with regard to the wood. Um, and is there anything that we haven't touched on before we let you go? Um, you know, related to this, related to the, the general topic, um, or anything you think is important for our audience to know before, um, we thank you for your time. I mean, well, we we just want to make clear. I mean, we've got no no skin in the game whatsoever. We just want to make sure that that um, that really the truth gets out on this. In, in our opinion, what what happened, and um, and you know, we we just don't want to see a see something get blamed that can't really you can't up fight back. And that's been an inanimate object like what? You saw Lord of the Rings when the trees it's, do come alive. Its and... bark is worse than its bite. Anyway, um. Zach, thank you again. Uh, that's Zach Ray. Yeah, thank you all for thank you all for all the effort that y'all put in and following the story and and, and hopefully hopefully it makes a difference and and uh, Natalie really appreciates you um, you getting everything going here. Yeah, of course. Well, thank you, Zach. Um, we'll let you go. Applause. Give him a round of applause on your way out. Thanks, Zach. Take care. That's Zach okay, Reich. Zach Reich of Roby Decking, based in North Carolina. Um, who yeah, you know. Worth worth noting again, he said eighty to ninety percent of his business is black locust. So, the man clearly has reasons to love the wood. Um, in this case, he thinks it is not to blame for this million dollar bridge debacle. Sure, uh, and you know what? He was pretty clear about his explanation for that, and I got no reason not to believe him. It sounds sensible to me. It certainly sounds reasonable. As I said, it would have been nice to be able to compare what he brought to the table with what the park found. Um, but we're still waiting on the legal, you know, intricacies of the foil law. What do you think of that bridge to begin with? Do you like the idea of having a bridge like that? The bridge is as a crossing, as a, a way to get from, you know, Brooklyn Heights to Brooklyn Bridge Park is a great piece of infrastructure. I think it served a purpose a huge purpose. I think, you know, people want more ways to get to the park. Sure. Um, you know, I, I can't, I can't comment too much about its inception or its initial design process because I wasn't following it then. Right. Um, but it's just unfortunate that a resource that is really, you know, was a really great idea and is really needed by the community. It just, it's unfortunate that it's become such a, a boondoggle because people have only been able, people, I believe, and I'm not a mathematician, Johnny, but All right. I believe that the bridge was out of service hmm. for longer than it was in service oh, for since sure. it debuted. No so question. It's kind of frustrating because it is a much needed piece of re- piece of infrastructure. A lot of money gone into that thing too. Um, yeah. So sounds like. And it's it's not over. You know, it's going to be a long time before they replace it. I mean, obviously, the bridge goes over the. The BQE goes over the triple cantilever. How they will reconstruct something entirely new amid that project remains to be seen. So, so much infrastructure news, but enough. All this wood, broken bridges, and you know, crumbling highways. Bridges to nowhere. Fun. It's time for some fun, and there's only one person. That's right. Who can bring the fun, and that is national. Treasure and Arts Editor Bill Roundy, who is joining us again in the studio. Bill Roundy. Well, hello, hello. Round of applause for Roundy. We got him back. 
What's up, dog? Look, I am tired of the infrastructure <laughs> and all these talks and roads. It is time to blast off into outer space. Whoa. You don't say. Yes, that is my plan for Wednesday is the Outer Space Show. Where at? That's going to be at the Waystation Bar over in Prospect Heights. Which, is that uh, Doc Wasabasco? Or... Yes, it is. Uh, you may know uh, the Waystation as the Doctor Who Bar. Yes. Because it has the time machine from that show uh, is built Part of its into decor, the right? Yeah. Right. Uh, and then... There's infrastructure for you. Exactly. That's the infrastructure you can get behind. Uh, and Doc Wasabasco was... Uh, sort of helped to found the bar as well. Uh, and he led a burlesque troupe called uh, Wasabasco Burlesque for 15 years. And uh, now he's working on uh, an online YouTube show called Outer Space with Doc Wasabasco. That's basically a talk show that is set on a spaceship. And it's very silly. Uh, it is a go-go-powered spaceship. Oh. It has segments oh, oh. every week. With uh, I'm know, getting with, like with clone care. Austin Powers, Doctor Evil. It's a very vibe. sort of doc- 1960s groovy vibe. Okay, uh, hey, and so baby. they're actually launching the show this Wednesday at the uh, at the way station. So there will be go go dancers, and there will be space dating. What time is this happening? Uh, I believe it starts about seven o'clock. All right, and please, someone go and let us know how it is because I won't let Bill Roundy go. We go to press on Wednesday nights, so he has to stay at his desk far past uh, seven p.m. Maybe I'll go. Let Johnny, you all know how it went to infinity and beyond. Bill, what else is on your calendar this week? Well, uh, New York City Beer Week is still going on. Uh, Cheers! Yeah, I so... got the hangover to prove it. No. <laughs> No, I had a I had a little bit of a rough morning on Sunday after I went to the opening bash Saturday night. Uh oh. Um, but there's going to be another event uh, in Williamsburg. Uh, we're going to bring Coney Island to Williamsburg. Okay. Hey. Because Coney Island Brewing Company is doing a takeover at Clinton Hall, which is a beer hall on Metropolitan Avenue, uh, and they're bringing sideshow performers with them. Oh, terrific. So it's going to be a lot of fun. What is a sideshow performer? Liquid dinner and a show. Well, there's going to be sword swallowers. There's going to be stilt walkers. Fire Um, breathing a uh, bit. That's difficult to do indoors, but they do have a courtyard, so they might bring that. Okay. Uh, You got to watch the fire breathing when you're contained by four walls and a roof. And then they're going to know from experience. And they'll also have nine Coney Island beers on tap. Oh, my gosh. Including a whole bunch of things that are brand new. Which is very exciting. You know, the the brewery's expanding down there right now. Just in time for summer, they'll be like twice the size, right? I think three times. Three times the size. Oh, my God. So I'm excited to check that out. Yeah, it's a good way to get your Coney Island fix while they're, um, you know, mid-expansion. And I got a little advanced taste on Saturday, so if you go to that, I recommend trying the chocolate rhizone. It's kind of a... It's not actually chocolatey. It's just... Guinnessy type of... uh, It was a very sort of spicy rye beer. Oh. So very, very dark and... uh, and sounds... Yeah, very malty. Yeah, that sounds very unique, to say the least. Um... That can't be all. Oh, no. There's plenty. That That's only got us up to Thursday. Oh, my gosh. Um, so uh, on Saturday, um, there's a pretty good circus show if you want to bring the kids out. Oh, yeah. Uh, down in Manhattan Beach. Circus Incognitus. Um, that's at 2 in the afternoon. Is it an um, invisible on, circus? On stage uh, uh, at Kingsborough. Oh, love that. Love, love their stuff. So, yeah, it's a one-man show. 
Um, but this uh, guy, he's, he's a juggler, he's a clown, he's an acrobat. And so he's going to be doing it all sort of on stage, just sort of a quick one-hour show. Hey. But it looks like a lot of fun. We've got, we, they sent some pictures, and you know, which have him up hovering between two ladders. It sounds like a great event for the kids, without any of the normal smells that come with a circus. Right. No elephants. There's no, no you know, offensive <laughs> odors. And anyone, you know, I guess he might play a clown, but those with clown phobias, this sounds a little less um, intense. Yeah. There would only be one clown at any given time, let's put it that way. Well, and he doesn't do the whole, he doesn't paint up the face. He's no, okay, so there you go. it's the, only uh, the visual antics. All right. Well, that I would love to see a one-man one, one circus. Uh, and then that night, of course, it is Target First Saturday over at the Brooklyn Museum. So everybody gets in for free yeah. from 5 o'clock on. And they've got the Kahlo exhibit on now, yeah? The Frida Kahlo exhibit, although you do still have to pay for that one. Oh. That is a separate uh, timed ticket. Got it. And it not works. a suggested donation. Frida, not free. Correct. Uh-huh. Okay. Fr- All right. Yeah, nice um, one. Frida, not free. Um, but it's also, they're celebrating Women's History Month, because beginning of March. Yes, March 1st. And so there's going to be a, a lot of women performers there, uh, including the... Anja Dance Company, which is an all-woman Indian dance company that blends sort of traditional uh, Indian dance with Bollywood moves. Oh, I like that. I love Indian dance. I feel like it's one of, it's an art form that's so fascinating to watch. You know, just the way they move, the costumes, all of that stuff. And then, of course, the, uh, then it just turns into a dance party. Everybody no, dance No now. Bollywood. Bollywood, yes, but all the rest, too. Right. That sounds terrific. So that's at Brooklyn Museum on Saturday. Saturday night. Uh, and then Sunday, we're wrapping up a beer week. So you got one more yeah. chance. So down at the... Um, it's Randolph, right? Randolph Beer in Dumbo. Uh, every brewer in the city has sort of made up a special beer for New York City Beer Week. And you can sample them all. Uh, it's pay-as-you-go. They've got a pour-your-own beer wall that charges you by the ounce. But you can sample a couple of ounces of each. And then vote for your favorite for the Ruppert's Cup, which is named after a 19th century brewer. All right. Well, I got to add two two things for the agenda this week. Yeah, if you and then want. We, we have, you know, we're closing out our show with our third interview. That's right. So before we go to that, uh, Wednesday night, Brooklyn Nets play the Washington Wizards, and Friday they play the Charlotte Hornets, no oh. longer the Bobcats. Uh, so two two home games this week, nice. and uh, Nets have an opportunity to get a three-game win streak. They can win both of those, and so hopefully they do. The I hometown a, team. I love a streak. You I know, three's to, a trend. Yeah, and I wanted to change the name of the Nets uh, from the Brooklyn Paper Radio Show, but now the Nets are really gaining traction. I don't. It might be harder. When they were really bad, I felt like we might be able to change their name. Now it's going to be a bit They're going to hold on to the Nets? Well, Probably. The brand. Yeah. Let's see how they fare in this three-game streak. There you go. Streak there you go. Before we call the trick. Um. Really quickly, so we've got a lot to do. Um, before we go, we still have to give our listeners something to listen to other than our beautiful voices. Um, and that is some words from Lucy Kalantari, who whose outfit Lucy Kalantari and the Jazz Cats, her local band, took home its first Grammy Award this year for Best Children's Album, um, fourth four-time nominees. And since Bill knows everything to do and where to go here, we're keeping him around um, to help navigate our conversation with this award-winning artist. Bill, have you listened to any of their tunes yet? Oh, yes, I have. Yeah. Um, 
How would you describe Hello? them? Oh, Lucy, is this you? This is Lucy. Who is this? Lucy, hi. This is Tony Rotano, editor-in-chief of Brooklyn Paper and co-host of Brooklyn Paper Radio. I'm here with my co-host, Johnny Cunin. Hey, how you doing? Hello, Tony and Johnny. How's it all going? It's going well. Better now that we have you. We also have our arts editor, Bill Roundy, in studio with us. Hello, hello. Hey, Bill. How's it going? Things are good. We're um, glad to have you on. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you. Congratulations on your recent oh, Grammy you. win. That's huge. That must have been, you know, an undescribable moment. Four nominations, but your first win, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Um, Very excited. How, what, what, briefly, you know, what was, were you expecting the win? What was that moment like? Can you describe that indescribable moment? <laughs> No, because then it's not. Then it'll be describable. Then I'd have to edit everything I just said. <laughs> I could try though. Try. Uh, it, was, it was really unbelievable. It was incredible. Uh, I, um, you know, we, you could prepare yourself as much as possible for any outcome like this. You know, just sort of your mind. Um, and that's what I tried to do. I was just like, you know, regardless of what the outcome is, it's it's an honor to be nominated. It's an honor to to just be up there with all these really great artists. And actually, uh, four of us were from the New York area, four of the nominees. Oh, wow. So it was like, a, it was like extra partying. You know, it was like yeah. really celebratory. And um, so, of course, I had my son with me. He's six years old. So, um, you know, there was a lot of, lot of lessons in there. It's just like, look, we, whatever happens, you know, whether we win or lose, this is awesome. And... Um, <laughs> so and you won you know, we, and we won we're like ah so I, I let out a nice good scream from the belly because you know that's what you do and then um that was really cool uh, later on my my son told me that he felt a little nervous holding on to the trophy up there on stage but he was great <laughs> how heavy are those hi ah, yes yes they really are they make them nice and solid yeah <laughs> nice weighty. Well, it should be. It's a it's a huge honor. So, yeah. Lucy, um we know you're Brooklyn based, but tell us more specifically where are you, you know, where are you located? Where are you, you know, making your award-winning music in Brooklyn? <laughs> oh, cool. Um I'm in the Kensington area. Nice. Been here for for quite a few years in in this particular area, like 12 years. Um uh, jeez, I have lost count. 12, 13 years. Uh, but I've been living in Brooklyn since since the 90s. And, um, yeah, Have, I do most of my writing, well, wherever I go. It's, you know, the writing sure, it never in stops. my head. And, <laughs> but uh, I'm here, right here at home, and we record. Um, I do some recording here at home. And I uh, most of the, the recording, though, is done at Mona Lisa Studios out in Queens in Long Island City. Got it. Well... You know, it's that's the beauty of this city is when you need to oh, go yeah. to another borough, they're not too far away. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need a passport or anything. No, really great. which is yeah. wonderful. So yeah. tell us a little bit about you, yourself and the Jazz Cats. You know, what? how would you describe your music? Um, you know, are, are your, is your audience mostly local? Are they national? Is it international? Like, give us a, give us a, a little bit of a primer on, on, you know, what you're, what you're putting out there. Sure. Um, so what the way I describe it is we make jazz age music for kids and families. So um, that means that it's like old, old jazz. This is from like the 1920s, 1930s era. 
and um, and notice we say kids and family, so it's not just the kids. So the, we try to uh, the adults tend to enjoy it too, which is always very very nice. We always get really nice compliments from from parents saying, you know, either hey, I used to take swing dance lessons and I totally did my, you know, activated my my swing dancing steps and and they just like so happy about that and uh, or or uh, things like I, I listen to your albums even without my kids, which that's the coolest compliment ever. I bet. Um, so, um, you know, we started local. I started locally, you know, uh, and then just sort of kept expanding as we played um, in different cities and different states. And um, once um, things started getting playing, playing on the radio, you know, that's where your reach starts getting farther and farther out. So it's been really lovely. Where, um, for listeners who maybe don't have an album or, you know, obviously there are so many ways they can go directly to you, but what are some of the radio stations that, that are playing your stuff that people can tune into? Oh, um, WXPN Kids Corner. They have a, a really fantastic uh, radio show for families weekdays, Monday through Thursdays. And um, while they're based in Philly, they, you know, because the internet is what it is, you can stream it from anywhere sure. now. Um, and then, um, then of course, Sirius XM, they have a, there's a station on um, satellite called Kids Place Live. And um, so they play, they play us there a lot, which is really nice. So um, you can find like most, mostly a lot of, uh, you know, family radio stations, you'll find us there. Got it. Well, I uh, wanted to know if I could play one of your songs as our outro today. Uh, Bill suggested I Know a Little Fellow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'd love that. Sure. All right. Awesome. My son, my son on cello. Oh, no oh, wow. kidding. Yeah. So yeah. the j- jazz cats, they're of all ages then. <laughs> yeah. So uh, most of the jazz cats are, are adult-like. Uh, um, <laughs> I guess they, they look like adults, but in their hearts, we're all uh, you know kids. And then there's the actual kid. That's my son, Darius, and he's six years old. And when we recorded that song, he was actually only uh, five. Oh, my God. He's he's been playing cello since he was three. And um, he's still going, man. There is a music video for that song. Oh, yeah. You can see him and he is adorable. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) He's pretty cute. uh, I'm not going to lie. I know he's my son, but, you know. And it was filmed in Prospect Park, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. Oh my gosh. It was the nicest autumn day ever. And it was the last one. Like, oh, seriously. Good the next day, rain, all the leaves just went completely brown and, you know, they got, they were rotten. And it was done. Fall was over. So I'm like, I feel really, really lucky that we went out that day. I'm like, we have to go. This is the day to do it. I don't know how we're going to do it, but we're going to do it. And we did. Nice. Lucy, um, before we play, we let you play us out. Um, <laughs> what uh, do you do? You and the Jazz Cats perform live often in the borough. Are there places people should know to check you guys out? Or is it more of a seek out the album at the store type of thing? Oh, absolutely. Where can people I mean, hear you? We, you can find us like I mean, anywhere. I, the, again, the beauty of the Internet does that. You can find us on Spotify. Um, you know, YouTube and Facebook and, uh, but for calendar info, it's, uh, lucycolentari.com 
And um, there you'll get some of the, the latest dates, which now I'm going to run off and make sure I update it. And uh, <laughs> we play a lot in, <laughs> we play a lot in uh, you know, local libraries. And again, we, we, uh, we do go out into uh, different cities and things. I think there are some cities that we have planned for in the South. That should be fun. Oh, yeah. Here it's warmer over there, right? Yeah, a lot more warm days for those music videos. <laughs> Super. <laughs> um, well, Lucy, thank you for taking the time to chat with us, and congratulations again on the Grammy win. That's huge and, you know, great for the borough. Oh, thank you so much. It's a real humbling honor, and it's it's so beautiful. I'm so grateful. Well, we're grateful for your time. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say before we, you know, let you play us out. Oh, sure. Um, okay. Uh, follow all the sounds in your heart. That's what the name, the title of the album that won a Grammy. And it's just about following the, the sounds, um, trusting your gut and taking in all the sounds around us that build us into the beautiful community that we are. I'm not even going to say anything. Folks, that was Lucy Kalantari <laughs> of Lucy Kalantari and the Jazz Cats Grammy Award winning album for best children's album this year. Guys, I another great it. show. Yeah. No, Lucy, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you, oh, Lucy. You're so welcome. Thank Keep you so playing much your for music. having me. Yeah, our, our pleasure. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. As you were saying. So, you know, I think that's it. I think we've done it again. I'd like to thank the two of you for joining me here. The thanks returned. You're welcome. Bill, you know, I don't know how we do it without you every week. Um, I'd like to thank Brookdale Hospital. Of course. Thank you, our amazing sponsors. Please get your heart checked out. Check them out, brookdalehospital.org, I want to say. And I am right. And the call hospital seven one eight. That's right. dot org seven one eight two four zero five six zero zero. Get your heart checked and keep living a healthy, happy life. Yeah, and thanks to our guests Simeon Bankoff, Zach Reich, and Lucy Kalantari, who, without further ado, play us out. See you next week, Brooklyn. Peace out, Brooklyn. Bet.
improvise. Whoa! I know a little fellow who plays a little cello. He plays that. 